Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. I just want to thank you for being attentive listeners, for being folks who, um, I know I'm a young whippersnapper, right? Okay. And uh, I know sometimes it's easy to maybe dismiss what somebody says because of their age and maybe lack of experience or whatever, whatever, whatever. But you this morning received the word of God and uh, you were attentive, you were warm, and I just want to thank you for that. And I want to just maybe urge you and encourage you, continue to keep your heart open to what the Lord has to say here tonight and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, because I really do believe that the message that, and, and the progression, the, the theme that I'm attempting to develop here this week is a theme that our churches desperately need. Uh, it's a theme that I need. It's a theme that my home needs. It's a theme that every church I've ever visited needs. And um, Pastor uh, alluded to, uh, well, he quoted the verse, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And really, as far as I see it, the way Jesus said that the world was to distinguish us from any other movement, any other sect, any other uh, religion, if you could say it that way, is that we are to be men and women that are saturated with a love that can't be explained humanly. If your love can be explained by uh, investment and return, it's not biblical love. If your love can be explained by, oh, you just like those people, it's not biblical love. And so I really endeavored this morning to develop and to help us understand what's at stake. Each one of us um, will stand before God and we, our lives will be assessed. And as much as I believe there are a variety of criteria that God has given us in the word by which we will be judged, one of the big ones is, did you love? Um, and, and so that being said, I, I told you, I, I gave away a little bit of where we're going here for the next couple, couple sessions. I don't know about you, but I want to love, but frankly, many times I'm not terribly convinced that I don't love. I'm not terribly convinced that I am a hopelessly selfish person. And so what I want to do, particularly here tonight, Monday night and Tuesday night, is I, I want to take some time and I want to park on that concept of selfishness. Because I think all of us, whether we're on the younger end of the spectrum, whether we're on the twilight end of the spectrum here, all of us are selfish. All of us need desperate deliverance. And so kind of the way I'm going to do this here is tonight, tomorrow night, and Tuesday night, I'm going to have an angle, an aspect to selfishness that I want to focus on um, that I, I trust will, will help us turn that diamond around so we can catch a little bit of a different nuance of that which is our hopeless selfishness. 
And, uh, you know, uh, the, if I could maybe summarize what we've covered thus far in Sunday school, we saw the fact that God confronting us in our lack is not God being mean. It's not God uh, bopping us over the head. It's God trying to bring us to that point where we do not lack. It's God exposing our needs so that he can supply that need. This morning we saw that our whole life, our success in God's eyes hinges on whether we love or not. And the kind of love we're talking about is not the kind of love that can be faked. And we really spend some time looking at those verbs, right? The things that love does and doesn't do. And really what I don't know about you, what I saw in those verses was that love all too often is very absent from our lives. And here tonight I want to focus on one other aspect. And that is this. If I could maybe summarize in a statement where I'm going here this evening. It's this. But before I do, okay, I'm sorry. I'm Getting into this, okay, uh, years ago, I and my family, we were down in um, north central Florida, kind of near the villages, if any of you ever uh, are aware of that area, and uh, we were going to be doing a war, it was kind of a last minute meeting, that's kind of how things were way back in the day, and uh, my son David was three, my daughter Eva was just a few months, and uh, I had my two guys, and David was at that age where he got into everything. You all know what I'm talking about, okay? Just got into everything, but everything, you know, this high or higher if you don't want them to get into it and make sure there are no stools nearby that they can climb up on, okay? Well, David had gotten into one of my team members' luggage, okay? And uh, in this guy's luggage, one of the things I recommend my teenagers to bring is just some basic, you know, cold medication. And my son David loved M&Ms and candy. And he got into his, his luggage and he pulled out this baggie and in the baggie he found these bright green and bright orange capsules that looked a whole lot like candy. They were NyQuil and DayQuil. And uh, my son had evidently popped them out of the package and downed a couple of them. My wife came into the room and she found David sitting on the floor with all of these pills spread out and she didn't know what he'd taken and what he didn't take and my wife spazzed out, okay? As you can imagine, again, if you have a little one, she's like, David, what are you doing? What have you gotten into? And then she said, how, what did you eat? And thankfully, he was communicative, and he was very, very articulate, and he said, I had one green, one orange, okay? And so, okay, at least we knew what he had specifically, and so my wife said, Bobby, you need to make him throw it up. And so as she's calling poison control, I brought my son David into the bedroom where we were staying and I sat him on the couch and I said, now David, <clears throat> I'm about to do something that isn't going to feel very good. I'm about, I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take my fingers right here and I am going to shove them down your throat until you puke up that orange and green pill that you swallowed. I want you to know, David, I love you very much. And I want you to know, please don't fight me. I'm doing it because we need to get this out of you, okay? And my son, I was so impressed. He sat there, and yes, his eyes teared, but he let me do it. While at the same time, my wife is on the phone with poison control, she could hear in the background, and finally, the person on poison control said, what is, your, what is going on in the background? And my wife told the lady on the phone, and she said, tell your husband to stop doing that. He's going to be fine. Well, anyway, <clears throat> there that day, 
<laughs> the joys of parenthood, right? <clears throat> there that day, I, I kind of prepped my son, and I said, this is going to be maybe a little bit of a tough moment here. And I, I want to say this here tonight. Um, what I want to speak about here this evening isn't an easy thing to speak about. Um, it's not necessarily even an easy thing to hear. And I don't, I don't want you to necessarily, you know, tense up or anything beforehand. I'm probably overstating it, okay? Um, but I know from my own life, this matter of selfishness that I'm going to address, for me, was a breakthrough moment. And so I, I'm not sharing something that I've not had to work through myself and my past, and probably many of you have worked through some of these things as well. But, but let, me, let me summarize what I'm going to talk about here this evening in this way. Selfishness hides sin, but love comes clean. I want to I open with prayer. God in heaven, I do seek you here this evening, and I ask that you would help me to be full of the Holy Ghost here this evening, full of the love of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help me be um, precise with a scalpel here tonight so that not a single person leaves here um, hurt or feeling, um, feeling battered at all. But I just pray that you, Spirit of God, would wield your word with precision. And God, would you please show us where we, in pride or selfishness, have have chosen to hide things that you want us to come clean about. Lord, would you speak through me here tonight? Would you lead me to say what you want me to say and keep me from saying anything that I shouldn't? And I pray that every person here in this room would sense your love drawing their hearts out to you here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Joshua chapter number seven, please, here this evening. Joshua and chapter number seven. Before we begin reading, I want to read something that uh, a great man of God in the past has said. He says this, <clears throat> R.A. Torrey said, I can give you a prescription that will bring a revival to any church or community or any city on earth. The prescription is as follows. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest that I am to say will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together to pray for a revival until God opens the heavens and come da comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. This is sure to bring a revival to any church or community. I've given this prescription, Tori says, around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities, and in no instance has it ever failed. It cannot fail. You know, as we think about this, this matter that I'm going to speak about, I, I think we need to understand that God, as our Father, knows what is good for us. God is not like our earthly fathers unless you had an amazing earthly father. Our earthly fathers at times were impatient with us. Our earthly fathers at times held things over our head. But our heavenly father knows how to balance his holiness and his love. God, in his interaction with us, knows both how to address where we've messed up and lead us to succeed. He knows how to walk with us in our failures. And he even at times knows how to deal with what can be 
a rebellious child. Now, to be honest with you, I don't really feel as I look out here this evening that there's a single person in this room that I would feel comfortable categorizing as rebellious. And yet I know in my own life there have been times and seasons of times in my growing up years and even in my adult life where I've gotten myself involved in things and areas I ought not have done. And I know as a man, it's easy to bury those things under my tent. I know at times it's easy to hide those things that I've done that are shameful to me. I know at times it's been easy for me to try to paint it a different color, to try to sugarcoat it or just plain not talk about it with those that God has placed in my life to be a help and a blessing to me. And I also know that the very reason why I didn't want to come clean is twofold. Selfishness. And you know, those two things are the very antithesis of what we're after as a church. Those two things are the very antithesis to what it means to be a man or a woman that's full of the love of God. Because you see, selfishness hides sin. Selfishness doesn't want anyone to know, but love comes clean. Um, years ago, uh, in the uh, Northern California, there was a, a dam called the Oroville Dam, 770 feet wide. It held back the force of three and a half million acre feet of water. Put that in perspective, that's 1.14 trillion gallons of water. That's a lot of water. You put that into pounds, okay, eight pounds per gallon, that is 9.5 trillion pounds of water. You want to talk about a lot of potential energy? <laughs> That's right there, okay? And what you had is you had this cement structure holding back trillions of pounds of potential energy. Again, to put that potential energy into perspective, that is the approximate weight of 119 million 18-wheeler trucks. That is approximately the weight of 733 of all three pyramids of Giza. Okay. So what happened is that potential energy at one point ran the, ran the risk of turning from potential to kinetic energy. On February 7th, 2017, damage began to appear on the spillway. Folks were freaking out. They began to realize that down from that dam, there were thousands of people, in fact, over 188,000 people that were at risk of being impacted very literally by the trillions of pounds worth of potential energy behind that structure. And because of that, they evacuated everyone in the low-lying area, literally because the dam was risking uh, uh, compromise they literally uprooted hundreds of thousands of people okay had that damn burst it had the capability of impacting many many lives so I got a question for you what is holding back the love of God in our hearts what is holding back the ability that each one of us have that's inside of us to impact not just our homes, not just our church, not just our neighbors, not just our communities, but the world for Christ. Again, I don't want to overstate this, but it's true. It's, a whole, it's the very same thing that held back God's blessing for Joshua in Joshua chapter 7. 
I want you to look with me. Joshua chapter 7, verse number 1. Here, the word of God says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now, before I continue reading, I need to give a little bit of background and context to this. Joshua had a promise from the Lord God Almighty. The promise was that as you head into, as you cross the River Jordan, as you head into the land that was promised to you, I will be with you. He promised Joshua, every place the sole of your foot shall tread, that will be yours. Every single military encounter that you have, I will fight for you and I will give you the victory. It's not the might of your army that will give you victory. It's not the resourcefulness of your people that will give you victory. It is certainly not the weapons that you have in your hand that will give you victory. It is me, the Lord God, Sabaoth, the God of the Lord of hosts who will give you the victory. And so Joshua, as they head into that place, they were, uh, I would say, on the one hand excited and yet on the other hand, maybe a little nervous because they hadn't quite seen it before. Well, they'd seen it some in the Transjordan area, right east of the Jordan River, they saw God give them victory over Og and Sion and some of those other folks along the way. And yet, in the land of promise, they not only had God's promise for military conquest and victory, they also had a precedent because, you see, the first city they attacked was Jericho. You know the story of Jericho, right? <laughs> this place had impenetrable walls. This place looked like an impossible city for them to overcome, and yet God had promised that they'd win, right? And so they followed God's orders. They did what God had told them to do. They surrounded that city. They marched around that wall, and the victory that day clearly was not a result of any plan that Joshua had hatched. The victory that day was because God had done it, and they all knew it. So they had a promise. They had a precedent. They saw God work. But the children of Israel had a problem. And the problem is what we see developed in chapter uh, 7, verse number 1. The children of Israel committed a trespass. They had crossed the line in something. There's a certain sense in which God had drew a line in the sand and someone in the camp had crossed it. What was that line? He tells us what it was. It says they had committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now, at first glance, if you're not familiar with the story and the narrative, you might not know what that's talking about. But here in this particular city, in this particular battle of Jericho, God had made it very clear that all of the spoils of battle in this particular instance were totally off limits. They were devoted not only to God, but they were devoted to destruction. The, the instructions were uh, clear enough that everyone knew, hands off. But we find here in this verse, it says, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. We'll find later on in the chapter that what specifically he took was he took a pittance. He took a wedge of gold, he took some pieces of silver, and he took a Babylonish garment. And this man, because he disregarded what God had said, because he crossed the line of God's instructions, this verse says, and the anger 
of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. You know, I just want to say this. Joshua had a problem in the camp. And the problem in the camp was that someone had gone against God's direct instruction and had hidden it. The problem was is that there was sin in the camp. Now, as we think about our, our setting here, um, I, I just want to say that hidden sin is anything that you know to be wrong, that you actively try to hide from other people. You know, for the teenager, hidden sin might be some relationship that's going on under the surface that they don't want mom and dad to know about. And so they do everything they can. You know, they create separate social media accounts that mom and dad aren't aware of so that they can do what they want to do and communicate with who they want to communicate with. But I'm not preaching to teenagers here tonight, okay, except for one. All right, just, just get it all, all right, take it from me, all right. I'm preaching to adults. And you know, as an adult, as an adult, the list of sins might be a little bit different than you might typically expect of a teenager, yet there is definitely some overlap. As adults, our hidden sins are often a little bit more creative, a little bit more out there, a little bit more, well, shameful to be perfectly honest with you. I want to just work through a list here, and you're welcome to write these things down. But I, a couple, uh, several weeks ago, I sat down and I, I really tried to wrap my mind around what are the sins, what are the sins of the adults in our churches today? Some of them may be a little bit outside the scope of who I'm preaching to here tonight. Some of them may hit the nail right, uh, right on the head. How about this? Hiding a gambling addiction. Hiding a gambling addiction. You know, years ago, I would have thought that no Christian would be caught dead gambling. Then there was a missionary that I knew of who worked in Eastern Europe who evidently took a bunch of his missionary support and wasted and squandered it in gambling. And I realized, you know what, this is maybe a bigger deal than I realized that it was. And while maybe some of you here in this room would say, man, I've never gambled in my entire lifetime, I want you to understand that gambling is any time you risk the money and resources that God has given you for the potential payoff. And while we might not go to the slot machine, I don't even know if those things are legal in the state of Ohio, while we might not go and, you know, bet it all at the poker table, sometimes we do gamble on highly risky investments. Sometimes we do waste our money on things that, frankly, are not even the result of honest hard work and we hope maybe through a lottery ticket that we might win it big one day whenever you take the resources that god has entrusted to you and you frankly waste them with the hope of a low a low chance huge payoff i want you to know it's gambling it's gambling. I know that it's possible to even gamble when it comes to stocks and bonds. It's possible to play so fast and loose with the money that God has given you and to play such high in such high-risk markets that it's not much better than sitting at a table at a casino putting chips out. Again, you can tell I've never done that kind of a thing, or right? I don't know how all of that works. But listen, it, it is possible that there may be somebody here. You might have a more honorable form of gambling, yet you are gambling with God's money nonetheless, and you really don't want anybody to know about it. How about this? Illicit drug use. Illicit drug use. The word illicit means illegal, and I recognize that there could be some, perhaps even here in this room, who maybe 
nobody knows about it, nobody has a clue, but perhaps you have got a habit, you have got a supplier who feeds you things and you know full well that it's not right. Listen, folks have argued that what God has created, we are supposed to enjoy, and I will tell you that argument in and of itself is, uh, while in some senses, a right and fine argument, but when it comes to this matter of drugs, it's an argument from the devil. Um, I don't have time to go into my whole story. I'm going to maybe talk a little bit more about it later. But my birth mother, at one point in her life, um, she had graduated from Bible college, and she had, um, she had, uh, she, uh, listen, ideas have consequences. And there came a point in time where she was convinced that light marijuana use would be okay. One thing led to another, and I'm not going to go into all the gory details, but she found herself at one point in time having attempted suicide, having been involved in grand theft auto, having lost her children because of a simple idea that what God has created, we are all to be able to richly enjoy, and specifically in the matter of drugs trying to be careful what I say about that. But listen, maybe your problem isn't illegal drugs. Maybe it's prescription meds. Maybe it's abusing pain medication or legal drug use. Listen, you go through a surgery and you get a pain medications uh, prescribed to you and perhaps you become so dependent on those things and far after the pain is gone, it continues to be something that you resort to. And maybe you figured out a way to get the prescriptions filled so that your spouse doesn't become alarmed. Or maybe you figured out a way to be able to use these things and to get your fix so the people at church won't know about it. But I want you to know it's sin to abuse prescription drugs. You know, uh, it could be argued that maybe it's not destroying my life. But I want you to know these gateway drugs can oftentimes lead to greater things. They can destroy your health. They can destroy your marriage, if not for the pure fact that this is something that you are hiding. We could talk about drugs here today. We could talk about alcohol or tobacco. Listen, the word of God tells us that we're not even to look upon the wine when it's red. And if we don't look at it, I don't think there's going to be an even chance that we're going to drink it. Listen, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And any movement or Christian that tells you that light alcohol use is fine and okay is a naive Christian who does not understand their Bible. Listen, friends, I want you to know alcohol has destroyed many homes. Listen, perhaps some of you have reaped the results of alcohol abuse, and you of anyone should know how destructive it is, and yet people allow themselves to entertain just a little bit of that toxic poison that has ruined so many families and so many lives. We could talk about dirty novels or podcasts. Listen, I recognize that there might be some who get involved in the romance novel scene, right? Or maybe it's, for the men, the action thriller full of God's name being taken in vain and all kinds of perverse wickedness. And maybe we have made decisions about those kinds of things and, and maybe instead of the dirty romance novels, instead we now go to the Christian romance novels, right? And we feel like maybe that's a little bit better because it's written by a Christian author, but let me tell you, anything that causes you to resent your husband because he doesn't treat you the way the hero in the story treats the woman, 
I'm telling you, it isn't right. I know this is a little bit of pot shots here. Forgive me here. I'm going somewhere with this. How about questionable YouTube videos or channels? Listen, YouTube is a place where there's a lot of information and there's also a lot of garbage and it's so easy to let the algorithm dictate what you see and what you watch and you delve and dabble into one dirty thing and before you know it, your feed can be full of filth and the more you engage, the more it recommends and the more it recommends, sometimes the more you engage. And friends, it's possible that there could be some in here who have, if I was to log into your YouTube account and take a look and scroll through your history, you'd be horrified and mortified. I had a team member on my team, not terribly long ago, who at one point, I had another, the other team member come to me and say they were concerned. They said every time they pulled up next to this guy on his iPad, he would turn it the other way, or he would just swipe out to some other app. And my friend, my, my team member, was very concerned about him. He said, I've seen this guy in the middle of the night over in the other room. I can see, you know, the lights on the ceiling flickering. He's watching something on his iPad, and he does not want me to see what it is. And I remember I came to him, and I sat down with my team member, and I told my team member, I said, hey, listen, I let guys struggle on my team, okay? but I need to be here to struggle with you. If there is something happening in your life, I really want you to be up front and I want you to be straight up with me. And if I ask direct questions, I need honest answers. And essentially what I said to him is, I'm gonna be asking you some specific questions in just a minute and I don't want you to hide anything from me because I can help you if you'll be honest with me. And so I asked him straight up, have you been looking at pornographic videos on your iPad? And he told me no. I asked a couple of other questions and he told me no. And I said, have you been engaging in any form of entertainment on your iPad? He said, no, sir, none at all. I thought, okay, hand it over. He handed over the iPad, I turned it around. First place I went was YouTube. I went to the history tab and I saw screen after screen after screen after screen after screen after screen. I can see when they were all watched and everything of anime videos. <laughs> anime, it's Japan, Japanese animation, okay? A lot of swords, a lot of blood, okay? Now, okay, you could argue about whether those things are appropriate or not, but I'm gonna tell you this, as I scrolled through, not only did he lie to me about an entertainment, but he also lied to me about pornographic material because as I was looking at the thumbnails of some of these things, I saw stuff that made me blush. And I could also see how much of those videos that he had watched. And I'll tell you, I sent him home for lying to me. But you know, it was so interesting when he was backed into a corner, he covered it up. When he was backed into a corner, he hid it. When my other team member came by, he turned it to the side. And listen, wives, if your husband won't let you look at what's on his phone screen, I'd be kind of concerned if I were you. And you know what, husbands, if you don't want other people to see what's going on on your phone, I also would be concerned for you too. Listen, I could go through and say a whole lot more here. How about secret relationships on social media? How about adultery? How about secret crushes 
on someone under, other than your spouse. Maybe somebody you work with, somebody that pays you attention. Maybe somebody that works for you in a place of employment. And maybe they just, oh, they think you're the greatest person. And you know what? Oh, this person, they, uh, they just think you have all of the answers. And maybe you come home and your wife doesn't seem like she appreciates you quite as much as the person at work. And while you would never dream of an adulterous relationship. Maybe you entertain a fantasy or two every once in a while. Maybe you allow yourself to enjoy the appreciation a little bit more than you ought, and perhaps it even turns to the point where you wonder what life would be like with them. Well, you'd never tell anybody. You'd never unveil that portion of your heart. How about stealing items from work? How about unethical business deals? Oh, it might work great for you, but there are details that you did not share on purpose that make it an unethical deal. How about mistreating workers? You got people that work for them and you don't pay them enough. You don't treat them the way they ought to be treated. How about thoughts like anger, covetousness, lust, deception, resentment? about hiding and pregnancy? How about discord and division? How about jealousy, betrayal, lying on your taxes, slander? You know it's not true, but you say it anyway. Sexual resentment or withholding? I'm going to leave that right there. How about the idolatry of sports, television, recreation? How about child discipline that goes beyond that which is appropriate and right? I told you this was going to be a little tough. You know, friends, when it comes to these matters, <clears throat> and listen, I'll, I'll mention something else too. How about, um, how about being inappropriate with your children? I'm sorry, I recognize that even that kind of a statement in and of itself could be difficult to hear, especially if you've been on the receiving end, okay? My purpose is not to rub salt in old wounds, but to say that in our churches, as much as I would like to say that half of these sins aren't present, I'd be a fool for saying so. Because listen, as I've traveled and as I've preached, I've realized that folks can come to church and they can look good and they can play the part and they can sing their guts out in church. They can be in leadership. They can be in positions of power and well-respected in the congregation and unbeknownst to anyone in the church. There are skeletons in their closets. There are areas and things that have happened, maybe not in the recent past, maybe long, long ago. Areas of infraction, area where they've crossed the line of what God has said is good and right, and areas which, if folks were to know what, what, what happened, they would be mortified. And I want you to know the only two things that would hold us back Listen, I'm not saying that some of these things need to be just talked about cavalierly in public. Please don't misunderstand me. But the only thing that holds us back from getting right 
is selfishness and pride. But you know, before I really talk about what needs to happen here, and I'm going to try to make this quick, I got three points, major points that I want to give you here this evening that I hope will help us understand the seriousness of this matter of hidden sin. Because I would imagine that if any one of those things struck home in any one of you here in this room, and perhaps there were things the Spirit of God spoke to you about that I did not mention specifically, but I know what is easy for us to do is to think, oh, that was a long time ago, it's not that big of a deal now. Or to think, well, you know what, he mentioned some pretty heavy sins in that list of things that he talked about. The one that God's pointing out to me in my heart isn't that big of a deal in comparison to some of those, whoa, I can't believe he said that from the pulpit kind of things. And I want you to know that whether you feel like it's the kind of thing you could go to jail for, or whether it's the kind of thing that some people might look at you and say, dude, why'd you even talk to me about that? It's not that big of a deal. Here's the thing. If God puts his holy finger on it, it is a big deal. first thing that I believe here in this text that we're going to see that we need to do is first we need to look at where hidden sin will take you. As we continue to read in the narrative, verse number two, it says, and Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Now, I've got to pause for a second and say Joshua was completely unaware of the problem that was in his midst. He was unaware that Achan had done what Achan had done. He was unaware that the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And frankly, I don't blame Joshua for what he did here at this point. He's just sending men to do what God had told him to do. God's marching orders had not changed. He was to go and conquer the land of promise. God promised that they'd win, didn't he? And so Joshua, it says, he sent men from Jericho where they had just experienced a supernatural victory to the next city on the list, Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about oh, two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few, for there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men. So here you find Joshua scoping out the city. Hey, listen, God is more than capable of handling this city. If he could handle Jericho, AI is nothing. Let's go! And so he sent those men to conquer the next city on the agenda. But because of the hidden sin in their midst, the results were very different. As you, can, as you read, we find here in verse number four, so there went thither of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about 30 and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shevarim, and smote them in the going down. See, I want to make this statement, hidden sin never leaves you static. I think sometimes it's easy for us to get in our minds and think, okay, sure, there's that thing that happened years ago. There's that thing that God just put his finger on in my heart just now. But you know what? It's not really affecting me right now. But I want you to understand something that is this. Hidden sin will always leave you defeated. Listen, I have found in my own life, when there are things that I'm hiding, it starts a domino effect of defeat. 
I'll just share personally here, when I was a teenager, I was completely and totally addicted to video games. It was my coping mechanism for the pain of my mother dying at 12 years old. I dove into video games, which in and of themselves were not sinful, but they did make an escape from reality for me. There were definitely sinful elements to some of those video games, but I will tell you there was a point in time where God in heaven told me to give them up and to give them all up. And who was I to argue against God? When the war came to my church as a senior in high school, I had just completed my senior year actually, and God said, I want you to get rid of them all. I obeyed the Lord. I put them all in a big old box and dumped them in a garbage can. And as far as I was concerned, I was done with them. Well, fast forward a little bit in Bible college. There were times when I would entertain the idea of, you know, I got a new laptop, putting a game on my laptop. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm not saying that it's sin for anybody to be involved in video games, but God told me no. He knew my past. He knew my makeup. He also knew that for me, Video games were a gateway drug of selfishness that would always lead to further things. And you know what I found in my experience? When I hurt my conscience by disobeying God and hiding my games, it always left me completely open to the devil's attack. What would happen is I would compromise my conscience by dabbling in maybe what could be an innocent no, you know, not like some terrible shoot 'em up, kill people, immodest, immoral game, but maybe some dumb, stupid little, you know, innocent game. But God had told me no. But when I crossed the line and did what I was told not to do by God, well, I would maybe struggle with other things on my phone. Or I would perhaps struggle in some seemingly disconnected area. See, what I found is that when folks are hiding sin, when God's on their front doorstep ringing their doorbell and they refuse, what is happening is this, in pride, they are resisting God. And you know what the Bible says happens when we lift ourselves up in pride? God resists us. See, here's the thing, hidden sin is hidden for a reason. You don't want anyone to know about it, and that's called pride. And God says that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a very real sense in which the very grace of God that we need to be victorious in our walk, when we in pride hide our sin, it cuts us off from the very grace that we need. And so what happens is, when we allow hidden sin in our midst, we begin to be more susceptible to defeat. And defeat leads to more hiding, which leads to more defeat, which leads to more hiding. You see the, the cycle? Well, here, these men were defeated. It left them defeated, but not only did it leave them defeated, we find at the end of verse number five, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. Not only will hidden sin leave you defeated, it will also leave you discouraged. Here's what happened. They were standing there, and God, on the one hand, had promised promised that they would win and yet here they found 36 corpses attesting to the contrary that's discouraging i'm sure they found themselves thinking now wait a second god promised that we'd win but we lost but god promised that we win but we'd win but we lost what is going on has god forsaken us has god deserted us 
Maybe there's something wrong with us. That's half right. You know what, maybe there's some, maybe, maybe God didn't really mean that we were supposed to have victory. They were all confused, they were discouraged, and in fact, it will not only leave you discouraged, it will also leave you disillusioned. Uh, if we look down at verse number 7, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we'd been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say? When Israel turneth their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites, and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us round, and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And you almost get the idea that Joshua is pointing his finger and blaming God for this. God, you said we'd win, but you let us down. This is going to go bad, and it's going to go bad real fast. And what are you going to do about it? I'd be afraid of the lightning storm after talking to God like that. You know what I mean? But here's the thing. You'd be surprised the kind of thoughts you'd think against God if you live in hidden sin for too long. Because here's the thing, all the promises that God has given you for victory in the Christian life will seem like an illusion. They'll seem like a lie. I remember there was a young man I talked to years ago. He actually grew up in the church that I'm a part of up in Wisconsin. And I remember at one point, he just, just, man, rebellious, digging in his heels. And I remember one point in the lobby talking to him. And I remember saying, hey, don't you believe that God can give you victory here? And he said, I used to believe that, but I don't believe that anymore. It doesn't work. I tried it. While I don't know all the circumstances in his life, I'd almost be willing to bet, except I preached about that earlier, okay, that this young man had some hidden sin in his midst that he was unwilling to deal with. And that hidden sin because of his pride, led him to being cut off from the very supply that he needed to help him have victory, which led to extreme depression and discouragement because something seemed to be wrong with him, which led him to the conclusion that it doesn't work. That the victory that God promised isn't real. In fact, I think people can even get to the point where they doubt the very word of God, they doubt the very existence of God. Christians who at one time were on fire for God, who through this downward spiral of hidden sin find themselves to the point where they're not even sure that God exists anymore. That's pretty bad, isn't it? As we look at the passage here, Joshua is clearly at a low point at this point in time. The good news is that God spoke. And I don't know about you, more than I want to speak here tonight, more than I want to walk through a list, I want God to speak to us. You know, the temptation could be in a message like this for us all to get uptight and for us all to get introspective and for us to try to, you know, uh, examine ourselves and go through all the different things that maybe I've gotten wrong and you might end up dredging up stuff that's already been biblically dealt with. I recognize when there are big hurtful things in our past, it's easy to allow the devil to bring those things back up when they've already been biblically dealt with. He is the accuser of the brethren, but here's the thing, more than I want you to listen to what I have to say here tonight, I want you to listen to God's diagnosis. That's point number two. Point number one is look at where hidden sin will take you. Point number two is listen to God's diagnosis. So here is Joshua, and I have to hand it to Joshua. Joshua. 
He didn't run from God, he ran to God. And though his attitude was wrong, and though he was whiny, and though he was complaining and frankly on the verge of disillusionment, he was in the right place. He was in the house of God. And it was there in the house of God that in the next verse, God spoke, verse number 10, and the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up. Let me tell you this, friends. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of how many skeletons you've got in your closet, the place God never wants you to be is on your face in discouragement. God never wants you to stay in the slough of despond. He never wants you to remain in the fog of depression. There's always a way out. There's always a way out. It is, I do not believe that it is ever the will of God for a believer to stay in depression. In fact, while there can be real reasons for depression, I think oftentimes depression, not all the time, but sometimes depression is actually the result of hidden sin. It's a guilty conscience, not always, but sometimes. So what did God say? Listen, there could have been a number of different reasons for the defeat, but God spoke and put his finger upon the exact point of departure from God's power. He said, get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Here it is, verse 11. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed or broken my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen. So what happened was this. They disobeyed. And not only did they disobey, they deceived. He says, and dissembled also, and they've put it even among their own stuff. So it wasn't just that there was an infraction. It wasn't just that someone had crossed the line of disobedience, but they had literally taken that very disobedience and they covered it up and they hid it from anyone who could potentially know about it. That's the problem. Listen, I want you to know we all sin. I want you to know we all mess up. We all make mistakes. And at times we just plain do wrong, full well knowing. And I want you to know God expects us to come clean. God expects us to cough it up and get right. But the worst thing you can do is to cover it up. It's the worst thing you can do. Mold grows in the dark. So he said there was disobedience, there was deceit, but also there was a dilemma. This doesn't uh, seem uh, obvious at first, but, but I want you to track with me here. Um, he says in verse 12, therefore, in other words, this is why the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies. Here's why. Because they were accursed. Because you took that which was accursed. Now you as a nation are accursed. And he says, neither will I be with you anymore except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people. And say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. And here's, here's the key. In fact, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. What are the first three words? In the what? 
Okay, that might not seem important, but trust me, that's an awesome three-word phrase, and we'll see why in just a second. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord, shall that the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by household, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man, and it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. See, two times in verses 13 and 14, he said, tomorrow, in the morning, tomorrow, in the morning, and here's what was going on. God said, here is the plan. I want you to send messengers throughout the camp, and I want you to warn them. Tomorrow morning, we're going to expose who took of the accursed thing. You say, what's good about that? All night long. From the moment the message had been received until that morning meeting, Achan had a chance to come clean. See, from the moment the message had been received, Achan had a dilemma that he was facing. Will I take the initiative, walk down to Joshua's tent, and say, Joshua, there's something you need to know, or... Would he continue hiding and risk detection? Based on what I know about God and the Word of God, I believe that if we confess our sins, if we come clean, if we confess and forsake our sins, the Bible says we will have mercy. And though I believe there would have been consequences for Achan and his family, they would have been nowhere near as bad as if he got caught. And all night long, I believe Achan was grappling with what he knew about God, if I go down and come clean, maybe there will be mercy, maybe not, but he didn't want to come clean. The reason why I know that is because he didn't come clean. So what we find is this. He had two choices in front of him. Am I going to get up out of my tent and get right with the one who needs to know? Or am I going to continue hiding like nothing ever happened? Really, that's the dilemma we're in, too. No doubt, as I've been speaking here tonight, God has put his finger on something. It could be little. It could be really big. But you also have a choice. Are you going to pretend like you never heard this message? Are you going to pretend like God never diagnosed the issue? Are you going to just continue to experience defeat after defeat after defeat? Are you going to continue in your selfishness to insist that this kind of radical thing is unnecessary? Are you going to hold yourself off from truly experience the supernatural love that God wants to gush through us? And are you going to settle for your cheap Chinese knockoff that doesn't really get the job done? Or are you going to come clean? So how did, how did they come clean? How, how did this work here in this, in this chapter? I, I got one final point. Just bear with me. I'm, I'm getting there. Point number one was listen. Uh, look at where hidden sin will take you. Point number two was listen to God's diagnosis. And point number three, lynch. Lynch the Achan. We get down to uh, our, our verses here. Uh, verse number 16, it says, So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. 
and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Be sure your sin will find you out. And Joshua said unto Achan, verse 19, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And here we find the first step in the process. And the first step is this. You need to expose your sin. The first uh, entity that that sin must be exposed to is God. He said, make confession unto him. It's where it starts. We need to agree with God about our sin. We need to stop explaining it away, justifying it, calling it something other than it is. And we need to come before God and we need to say, you know what, what happened five years ago on my taxes is sin. It is theft. It is wrong. It is not okay. We need to be able to come to terms and say, you know what, that deal that I made with that person with my business, it was wrong. I withheld important information from them. That time that I clocked out far after I stopped working, that is theft and it's wrong. That time three years ago, when I stayed up late into the night and went on all kinds of websites that I know do not please God, I know it broke the heart of my wife, and frankly, first and foremost, it broke the heart of my God. It is not okay. It is not a weakness. It's not just what men do. It's sin. We need to talk to God about it. Stop playing around. And say, God, here it is, here's all of it. Obviously, God already knows your sin, though. So that's the easy part, in a certain sense. But he didn't just say to expose it to God. Here, Joshua said, and tell me what thou hast done. Now, this is a tricky part. Just to be perfectly honest with you, how to apply this here to adults with teenagers, I would say your parents need to know. Your parents need to know. If anybody needs to know, your parents need to know. And I would expand that and say, you know what, if you're a student at a Christian school and you break the rules of your school, your school needs to know. I would say that furthermore. In fact, I maybe might extrapolate this here just a little bit more and, and put it to you this way. Any entity that your sin has affected needs to know. Men, some of you, your wife needs to know about some stuff that's been going on. Listen, if it directly relates to this church, maybe your pastor needs to know. If it relates to your job and your boss, maybe your boss needs to know. Listen, the per people that have been offended. And listen, I recognize some people can go to seed on some of this, and maybe if you just thought bad thoughts about somebody, you don't necessarily want to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I murdered you the other day in my mind. I don't think that would help the situation, okay? So please, don't, don't go off the wrong you know, the deep end on this. But I am saying this, there are some people who need to know. And chances are you know who needs to know. You might say, this was a long time ago when this thing happened. Well, maybe you need to 
look up the phone number for that teacher in Bible college and give them a call and tell them about how you cheated on that exam. Maybe you need to call up and, and track down that former employer who maybe is no longer even in business anymore and say, hey, you remember back when I worked for you, for you 20 years ago? There's something you need to know. Listen, friends, I believe that there are some that God would have us talk to. Maybe this is a person who's responsible for you spiritually. In fact, I would say that if there's abuse happening in your home, as much as this opens up a whole can of worms, your pastor probably needs to know. Yes, I said that from the pulpit. And I will tell you what, depending on the situation, the authorities may need to know too. That's really hard to say. It's really hard to say. But I'm going to tell you what, friends. I'd rather be right with God in jail. I'd rather be right with God in jail. You know, friends, here in this passage, we're supposed to expose it to God and those who need to know. Sometimes there are people that you're comfortable to talk to about your sin issues. Some might say, hey, I told my friend. Is that okay? You might be if you offended your friend. However, consider this. I believe Achan told his wife, and evidently that wasn't good enough. What's the deal? Achan didn't offend his wife. He offended God. Furthermore, Achan's sin didn't just affect his wife, it affected the nation. He broke the nation's rules and therefore had to talk to the person in that nation who needed to know. So the first step is to expose the sin. Joshua made it very clear, a confession unto him and tell me what you've done. And Achan here at this point offers a forced confession. And let me tell you what, forced confessions rarely get the job done. I had a friend growing up, you know him, Jake. He's a missionary to Hungary now. As a teenager, he had all kinds of garbage in his life, and there were several times where he was caught red-handed with sin. And when he was caught red-handed, he would confess the thing that he was caught about, but he would never confess the other things that were going on to his parents. There came a point in time when God was putting his holy finger on Jake's life, and he was caught from one little trivial thing, and he told by his own testimony that there at that moment in time, he was at a crossroads. He was in a dilemma himself. Am I just going to settle for what I was caught about? Am I going to settle for this forced confession? Or am I going to go downstairs and get my backpack, literally my backpack, and bring it back up and show them everything? thankful he made the choice to show them everything. Listen, I want you to know you might be caught in something, and if you just divulge what you're caught in, it's not going to help you. Here, Achan was caught in something, and he divulged what he was caught in. But a forced confession never works. Only a confession that you yourself has initiated can truly do the job of what we're talking about here. I'm not going to read his confession except uh, to jump down to verse number 22. Once he told them what had happened and where he had hid his items, it says, So Joshua sent his messengers, and they ran unto the tent. And behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them unto Joshua, and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, 
and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. And what we find is Joshua as the man at the helm He dealt with the infraction very seriously. You could say he expelled the sin from their midst. He expelled it fully. Everything related to the sin. That's why he dealt with Achan and the silver and the gold and his sons and his tent and everything that he had. Now, let let me just maybe clear up some misunderstandings here. We're not going to have a stoning session outside after church tonight. So please do not be worried that we're going to stone you with stones and burn you with fire, okay? The point here tonight is not who's the Achan in the church. The point is what are the Achans in your life? Your Joshua, your job is to deal with the sin in your midst. And just as Joshua did, he left no stone unturned. He dealt with everything related to to the offense, all of it without mercy. He dealt with it fully. He dealt with it fervently. He didn't throw a pebble at Achan and call it a day. He didn't put his arm around him and say, hey, listen, buddy, I wish I didn't have to do this, but you know, the big guy upstairs told me I have to. No, he with a full heart, with an attitude of appropriate biblical revenge. If you studied 2 Corinthians 7, you know what I'm talking about. He fervently, it says, dealt with him. He says, the Lord shall trouble thee this day, and I guarantee he wasn't smiling when he said it. He also dealt with it finally. Listen, I want you to know when you deal with a sin, oftentimes it can feel like an onion. What I mean by that is this. Many times, maybe in a service like this, or maybe you've been in services and preaching sessions in the past where God has put his finger on a point of infraction, right? And maybe it was conviction and, oh, I don't know. And maybe you went days under it, right? Wrestling, grappling. No, I don't want to have that conversation. No. I felt all those things, and, and maybe you have too. But then God wins in your heart. And you confess it to him and you expose it to the one or, or some who need to know. And perhaps you, you, you not only talk about it, you make steps to expel this thing from your life so that it will never come back again. And you go through this process of expelling the sin and you get, and guess what happens when you confess and when you forsake? Not only do you have mercy, you have joy. Listen, joy comes in the morning and there's a relief and and there's a freedom. And guess what? God's grace is available to you again and you're full of joy and relief and it's great and you're like, I'm clean. I'm right with God. This is us. And then fast forward to the next revival meeting. God puts his finger on something else you didn't think about before. I said it's like an onion because here's here's the deal. You peel a layer of an onion, you know what happens? It stings and and you cry. And you know what happens? You peel one layer off the onion, it stings, you cry, and then you look down and, oh no, there's more onion. So you peel that layer off and it stings and you cry. And you look down and, oh no, there's more onion. And it can feel like a never-ending process. 
And I'm going to tell you, if you're here tonight and you've never done this kind of unloading the truck before, you've never done this kind of dealing with hidden sin in your life before, chances are it's not all going to end in one encounter. Chances are you're going to deal with all that God's talking to you about, all that God put his holy finger on, and God's going to let you feel the joy. And he's going to let you experience the victory and the grace, and he's going to give you a taste of what is available. But fast forward a few months down the road, God might put his holy finger on something else, and guess what? Deal with that too. And it might hurt and you might cry. Maybe fast forward a few more months and he might put his finger on something else and you look down and no, not more onion. But I will tell you what, there will come a day when you look down and there's no more onion. For me, that day was at a church in Apopka, Florida. I was traveling with Jim Van Geldern as a team member on the War of Special Forces. And I remember God had put his finger on one area of infraction that required a phone call home to a relative about something that I had done. And I remember I wrestled over that thing for days, but I was out on the road being used by the Lord, and I wanted God to use my life, and I didn't want anything to hinder his working through me. And I wrestled, and I made the phone call. And I told him what he needed to know. And when I looked down, the onion was gone. And for the first time... In my life, I was current. I had dealt with everything. And while there had been infractions that took place after that, and I had to deal with them, and unfortunately I didn't always deal with them right away, there was not the life of backlog. Listen, I want you to know when it comes to this matter of deal, exposing and expelling the sin, this matter of lynching the Achan, when you say yes to God, when you expose it to those who need to know and when you take steps to expel it out of your life fully, every last vestige of it, fervently, and finally so it won't come back again, I want you to know, according to verse number 26 of this chapter, says, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. And I'm not going to read any of the verses of chapter 8, but sometimes study what happened afterwards. They went back to the same city, with the same army, minus 36 people, with the same weapons, with the same God. But this time, things were very different. Where before they had experienced defeat, now they experienced supernatural, divine victory. Listen, I will tell you, you will never experience the love that 1 Corinthians 13 talked about if you are selfishly hiding your sin. You will never fully experience the grace that God intends for every one of us to experience. You will continue to lack for the rest of your life if you are unwilling to lynch the aching in your heart. I get no joy or pleasure out of preaching a message like this because I remember the pain. I remember the feeling in the pit of my stomach as I realized I needed to have hard conversations. But I can testify that on the other side, it's worth it. It is worth it. And before we go any further here this week, I must invite you what God has put his finger on, do not walk away pretending that he didn't do it. Can I have every head bowed and every eye closed here this evening? 
every head bowed and every eye closed, and I'm grappling with exactly how to do the invitation here this evening, I think what I'm going to do is this. Is there anyone here this evening that would say, as you preached here tonight, God did put his holy finger on something? And preacher, I don't need to tell you what it is, but I want you to know God did show me something. He did diagnose something that I need to deal with very specifically here tonight. If that's you, can I see your hand? Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to urge you, don't be content to just know that it's there. We can start the process tonight. In a moment, um, in fact, why don't we do this? Why don't we go ahead and stand it? In a moment, the piano is going to play, but everyone go ahead and stand. In a moment when the piano plays, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to want you, if God has spoken to you specifically, I want you to have a conversation with God about that. Maybe up here at the front, maybe at your seat. I frankly don't care where you do it, but that you come to God and say, God, I'm tired of making excuses. I'm tired of explaining this thing away. I'm tired of hiding it. I'm exposing it to you, and I'm calling it what you call it. But I also want you in that conversation to ask God for the grace to follow through with the conversation with the one who needs to know. If you're here and maybe you don't know whether somebody needs to know, I, I would encourage you, maybe seek out pastor. He can connect you with somebody who can maybe sit down and, and, and help you diagnose who needs to know, if anyone needs to know. But I want to urge you here tonight, start the process by exposing it to God and ask him for the grace to follow that up with expelling that sin. So as the piano plays, you do business with God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.